Welcome to part four of Never Defeated. We're concluding the book of Nehemiah this week, and today we're talking about something you might not expect to hear in church. We're talking about how to overcome the idiots in your life. Now, I know sometimes you might think, oh, you know, churchy people would say there are no idiots in the world, but let's be honest, there are. And if I'm honest, sometimes it's me. I'll tell you one example of me being the idiot. This last winter, we were using our fireplace a lot. We had a, a bunch of ashes that had built up there. And so I waited until we hadn't had a fire for a while. And I looked through the ashes and there wasn't any orange in there. And so I scooped the ashes. I put them in a cardboard box and I put the cardboard box out in our trash can in the garage. It was a trash can that looked a lot like this. And uh, I put it in there, and as I set it in there, I saw some of the dust coming up out. I'm like, is that smoke or is that dust? I'm not sure. But it's really cold out, and I'm pretty sure there was no orange in there. I think we're good to go. So I start walking in the house, and then the, the paranoid, cautious part of me thinks, you know what, maybe just to be safe, I will roll that trash can out to the driveway. So at first I set it in the driveway right next to the house. I start walking in again, and again, the paranoid part of me is like, you know what, just to be safe, I'm gonna wheel it down the driveway a little ways. But you know, it's like 10 degrees outside. I'm pretty sure it was just, you know, ash and not smoke coming out of the box. And so I put it there and I go in and get the kids to bed and do all the normal life stuff. Wake up the next morning, I'm thinking about work and normal life and I pull out of my driveway and as I'm pulling out, I see this, this black mark on the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not, at first I was like, what in the world is that on my driveway? Like, what is going on? And then I wish you could have been in my head because it was just this ping pong of emotions of like, oh my goodness, you almost burned down the house to that is the funniest thing, the stupidest thing you've ever done. Just back and forth. And yes, I'm a complete idiot sometimes. We all are, if we're honest. I think when we think of the word idiot, we usually think of someone doing something stupid or dumb. But did you know our word idiot actually comes from an ancient Greek word? It's probably why I use it too much. Because I had to learn this word idios when I was in seminary. The word idios is actually in the New Testament. And it means oneself. So the word idiot, it actually comes from ancient Greece. And they would call someone who was so consumed with themselves that they didn't think about how their choices would affect the people around them, they would call that person an idiot. That's where we get our word from. So the word idiot literally means that person in your life, sometimes it's ourselves if we're honest, who makes choices out of so much self-interest that they don't think of the consequences for the people around them. And the sad reality is we will all have in our lives at times people who do that over and over and over again. And so today we're asking this question. We're asking, what can you do when a difficult person becomes part of your life, maybe even part of your daily life? Uh, maybe it's in your workplace, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your neighborhood, but there's that person in your life and you know, please don't say their name out loud. Please don't tap them on the shoulder if they're sitting next to you. Last service, I kid you not, I said, please don't tap them on the shoulder if they're sitting next to you. And a, a wife reached over and touched her husband. I'm like, oh my goodness, they're never coming back. They're gonna have a huge fight now. But anyhow, what can you do when a difficult person becomes part of your life? And you know, if you're anything like me, there's two very natural responses, 
right? There's the natural response of road rage when a person is just really, really difficult and, and you just go road rage on them and you just blow up and explode. And then there's this other response I think is really common in the Midwest because we're nice and we smile to people's faces, right? And we, and we say, oh yeah, it's okay. And then the person leaves and inside you're like, oh, it's just eating you alive. Because that person, what they're doing, their selfish choices are affecting your finances or your emotions or your relationship. And you're either losing sleep or it's just taking up way too much of your life. So here's what we're asking. How can you do the right thing without losing it road rage style? How can you choose God's way without holding it in and becoming bitter and cynical? Because you're acting like, oh, it's no big deal. But instead of road rage, you become roadkill, right? You just let them run you over. And you act like it doesn't matter, but it does. And it's an injustice of sorts and it hurts you. How can we properly handle these situations? How can we keep moving forward in the life of purpose that God has for each of us and not allow the difficult people to end up controlling our thoughts, our lives, our emotions? Anyone else want to know the answer to that question? I won't tease it out any longer because I think we've all got some situation in mind. If you don't, you might be the difficult person, or you can put all this in your pocket because eventually you will be dealing with a difficult person. Well, Nehemiah had one of the most difficult people in his life, uh, a true idiot by the Greek definition. This guy named Tobiah was opposed to Nehemiah from the first time they met. And we're going to see today that after 13 years, Tobiah is still there and he's still being a difficult person for Nehemiah. And we're going to see in Nehemiah how we can respond in a way that honors God and a way that sets us up to live a life of purpose. Here's a little bit of Tobiah's track record. Tobiah, the moment Nehemiah arrives to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, he makes fun of Nehemiah. He makes fun of the work Tobiah is a, a person who's impulsive and he gets angry and he even makes plans to fight against Nehemiah and God's people. He makes plans to kill Nehemiah. I did a little research this last week on who this Tobiah guy is. He's documented in history, not only in the word of God, but in other ancient literature. He came from a wealthy Ammonite family and archeologists have actually discovered a fortress right near Jerusalem from the same time as Nehemiah, and that fortress has the name Tobiah etched into the stone, engraved across the top. In other words, Tobiah was no mere heckler or naysayer. Tobiah actually had armies and alliances and power. And if you're like me, that's what makes the difficult people so emotionally draining and so potentially distracting in life, right, is when they actually have the power to affect your life, to affect your relationships or to affect your emotions or maybe even to affect your finances. Well, Tobiah's resistance and just his selfish choices continue. We see in chapter six, verse one, Tobiah spread false rumors about Nehemiah. Then he attempts to lure Nehemiah away from God's work and into a trap where they were gonna kidnap him. While he's doing all these outright evil things, he's flattering and deceiving many of Nehemiah's own people. Tobiah is the kind of person who would, you know, show up at someone's house and flatter them and make them feel really good. And so even though he was evil, a lot of God's own people liked him because he made them feel good about themselves. Tobiah continually threatens and intimidates Nehemiah 
and the work of God. Now in chapter 13, something almost unbelievable happens. In chapter 13, the city of Jerusalem has now been rebuilt where it was rubble and the people were living as just peasants in slavery, some of them. Now the city is rebuilt, all the infrastructure's back. At this point, it's been 12 years, people have rebuilt their homes, they've rebuilt their businesses. Jerusalem is now a very successful metropolis city and things are going really well in the city. Well, Nehemiah, you might remember, he had been the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes back in Babylon. And way back at the beginning of the story, he had prayed and asked God, will you put it on Artaxerxes' heart to allow me to go rebuild Jerusalem? And when God did that, Nehemiah had said, hey, once I get the city rebuilt, I'll come back to Babylon and I'll tell you how things are going and I'll return to you. So after 12 years, Nehemiah returns to Babylon. That's eight or 900 miles. And he hangs out with Artaxerxes. We don't know how long he was back in Babylon, but eventually he returns to Jerusalem. And when he returns to Jerusalem, he gets back to the city. And of course, he's appointed different leaders for various areas of the city. And then he gets to what would be the prime real estate in the downtown of a metropolis. It's where the temple is. And he's walking around and he's surveying the temple. He's kind of like when you've been out of town and you come back to see what has changed. And guess who he finds living in a penthouse suite overlooking the temple? The idiot. The idiot is back, right? And here's why I say the idiot, because if, if just think about this. Tobiah says, it's never going to work. You're never going to rebuild the city. It'll never succeed. And then Tobiah tries to stop it. And then after it does succeed, does he have the dignity or even the half ounce of character to say, oh, I was wrong. You guys pulled it off. No. He says, how can I slither my way into a position of power that will benefit me even though I was completely wrong, I'm gonna act like I wasn't, right? The guy's a totally self-interested, I mean it in the ancient Greek sense, idiot, okay? And, and so here's what happens in the next verse. Nehemiah's gonna see this. He says, I arrived back in Jerusalem. I learned about Eliashib, that was the high priest who was in control of the temple. Somehow Tobiah had manipulated Eliashib and Eliashib had provided Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple. So not only is this the prime real estate of the whole metropolis, but there's a spiritual connotation here as well, right? Because the temple is to be set apart for the people of God. And Tobiah has made it very clear he's not a person of God, nor does he respect the work of God. Well, Nehemiah, understandably, verse eight, becomes upset. And Nehemiah, keep in mind, he's pretty much in charge of Jerusalem. There's an army. Right? He could have gone road rage and he could have killed Tobiah or at least gone to war with Tobiah. He does evict Tobiah. He says, you can't live here. And he gets him out of there, but he doesn't go road rage. Verse eight and then verse nine, he says, I demanded that the rooms be purified. In other words, he has a spiritual connotation to this is the temple. And it's not only about getting this unhealthy person out of here, it's about God's temple being purified. And so how does Nehemiah ultimately handle this constant injustice, this recurring difficult person who's in his life, not for a month or a year, but for at least 13 years of life, Tobiah's there. Nehemiah has a consistent response and it can become our response 
when difficult people find their way into our lives. I'm gonna show you three examples of this response. It's the same thing over and over. Verse uh, 14 of chapter six, when Tobiah is challenging Nehemiah and just being really difficult, Nehemiah doesn't go road rage and he doesn't say, oh, Tobiah, everything's okay and just smile and let him run him over. Instead, Nehemiah says, he looks to God and he says, remember, oh God, all the evil things that Tobiah has done. And that might sound like an unusual prayer, but here's how he's sorting out his emotions where humanly he would either go rage or be run over. He says, instead, I'm gonna align myself with the God of heaven. And God, you see what Tobiah's doing. I don't have to get justice. I don't have to you know, punish him or deal with him because you're real and you're big and you're in charge and you're gonna deal with him. And so I'm just gonna keep doing your work. Uh, look in chapter five, verse 19. Nehemiah responds to another one of these times when Tobiah flares up as a difficult person. And in this situation, Nehemiah says, remember, oh my God, all that I've done for these people and for your work and God bless me for it. In other words, God, you see my heart and motives. You see how difficult of a situation I'm in. And God, I can't control Tobiah or the difficult people, but I can control me. And God, I am doing my best to do the right thing here. So see my motives and bless me for that. He says that again here in chapter 13, right after he evicts Tobiah from his temple suite. In chapter 13, verse 14, Nehemiah says, remember this good deed, oh my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done. Nehemiah constantly returns back to God and here's the answer to our question, what can you do when you're dealing with a difficult person over and over and over again? You live like God sees it all and you live believing that God will judge the living and the dead. Every single individual person will give an account to God for what they've done with their life. And you can live knowing that because you've placed your faith in Christ, you've been made right with God, you now get to choose and say, God, in this difficult situation, help me to live in a way that you can reward. Help me to live in a way that as you look at my life, you say, wow, you were treated unjustly. That situation was difficult, but you honored me. You did the right thing. You know, we can't control the difficult people in our lives, but we can control ourselves. And that's what Nehemiah demonstrates over and over again. He, he doesn't try to control Tobiah, but he focuses on controlling himself in a way that's honoring to God. Uh, I've got a situation that maybe you can relate to. It has to do with driving on the highway. Maybe you've been in the situation you're driving on the highway and I'll be honest, sometimes my cruise is set a little bit above the posted speed limit, but I like to think of myself as a very cautious driver. In other words, uh, even if I might be speeding a little, I'm not a reckless driver. Do you know what I mean? Not tailgating someone, I'm not weaving back and forth. And so maybe you're in this situation, you've got your cruise on and you're just humming along on the highway and all of a sudden some, forgive me for using the word idiot, zooms by. And I don't mean they're just kind of speeding, like they're going like 20 or 30 over and they're zigzagging across lanes and people are having to slam their brakes and they're almost causing accidents and they're just reckless and they're dangerous. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, I will admit, when that happens to me, my heart races, and usually the word idiot comes out of my mouth. 
Because it's dangerous, right? It's just, it's, it's reckless, it's thoughtless. They're not thinking about anyone else. They're just thinking about them and where they need to get and they're not even realizing how dangerous it is. Now, a little admission here. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite feelings in this life is when such an idiot is weaving through and almost causing accidents and then you keep driving with your cruise control on and up ahead you see police lights. You know what I'm talking about? And you keep going and you get up and on the right, sure enough, there's the idiot. He's been pulled over and, and the police officer's there at the idiot's window. Why is that such a sweet moment? You guys are laughing at me like you don't have the same emotions, but I know you do. That's such a sweet moment because that is justice, right? That's justice. It's what the person deserves because they're being completely reckless. And here's how Nehemiah lived. He lived knowing that there is a speed trap ahead for everybody. So he doesn't have to pursue the idiot. He doesn't have to chase down the idiot. In fact, because there's a speed trap ahead, he knows justice will be done to the idiot. But you know what? Because there's a speed trap ahead, I should focus on my speedometer. I should focus on my life. And this is such a great example for us because in our own emotions, we can so easily try to control it ourselves. And when we do, we either go road rage and we sin on that side, or we go this side of just letting the idiot run us over and acting like it's okay. And that's not honoring to you. You're made in the image of God and you, you don't let those people just run you over because that will make you bitter inside. It'll make you cynical. And so how can you not be one of those extremes? It's only by having a high view of God and having a relationship with God through Jesus where you know, God, I've been made right with you, not because I'm perfect, but because of Jesus. And now you give me the power to keep my eyes on my speedometer and to keep my steering wheel set on the course you have for my life. Well, in a moment, I'll give you five really simple ways to idiot-proof your life. But as I was thinking about idiot-proofing, I thought about the idea of waterproofing. Because when you have something that's waterproof, you don't necessarily love going through a storm, but you know you can make it without getting totally soaked. Did you know you can waterproof a vehicle? Some of you know I'm really into Toyota Land Cruisers. And here's an example of a Land Cruiser that has what's called a snorkel on it. And did you know if you have a snorkel on a four-wheel drive vehicle, you can drive through really, really deep water. And here's why. Your engine is already waterproof, but your engine is breathing in air. So where your car fails if you go through water is eventually the air intake breathes in water and then your engine dies. But if you have a snorkel like this hooked up to your engine, you can go through really deep water. Your vehicle is essentially waterproofed. And I want to really take this analogy because just like rain falls into each of our lives, difficult people fall into each of our lives. And I wanna help you kind of idiot-proof your life so that when there are difficult people that you're having to wade through or work through or deal with, they don't stall your engine, they don't soak you, they don't stop you, they don't sideline you, you're able to keep moving forward in the work of God. So here's step one to idiot-proof your life. Expect to encounter some difficult people. You know, if you're following God and you're just doing your best and all of a sudden there's a really difficult person and I know in a church our size, I mean, there's people who get sued in their businesses. There's people in custody battles. I mean, some people can be so difficult. 
When that happens, uh, don't be like, whoa, whoa, why is it raining? There are difficult people in the world. So if you know that, then it doesn't knock the wind out of your sails quite as much. In fact, the more you get serious about doing God's work in the world, sometimes there will be outright evil people like Tobiah was in Nehemiah's case. Tobiah wasn't just insanely selfish. He was directly opposed to the work of God. Well, step two, don't expect to fix the difficult people. And this is hard because we love people, we want the best for them, and we should pray. Even if the person who is harming our life is outright evil, it's noble that we pray for them and that we pray that God would forgive them, that God would reach out to them, that he would soften their hardened heart. It's good to pray for them. And, and very often you'll see God do miracles in those people's lives, but you can't change them. And sometimes we have to let go of thinking, I can fix this person, especially if the person is close to us in our family or relationally. Sometimes we can think, well, if I set everything up right, they'll stop making these bad choices. But really, they have this thing called a free will that God gave them. And you can pray that God will intervene on their free will, but that's the whole thing of God's sovereignty and man's free will. And you pray for them and you hope they'll change, but you can't put your life on pause waiting for them to change. Here's a pretty uh, harsh verse in Proverbs 26, verse 11. If you ever think the Bible's boring, just read the book of Proverbs. As a dog returns to its vomit... I don't know if you've ever seen that. Growing up, we had a dog who would, who would do that. He would eat grass and then he'd throw it up and then he'd eat it again. It's just disgusting. But I love it. This is in the Bible, right? As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to their folly. So the, the Bible word for idiot is, is this word fool. And a fool is described more than 100 times in Scripture. And what's the point of this passage about a fool? It says, does God, by the way, does God love fools? Absolutely. Jesus died for fools, including this fool, okay? And he can change a fool. And so we pray for them. But the fool is the person who keeps doing the harmful thing over and over and over again, and they don't learn from it. And sometimes that's the difficult person in our life. And so if you pause your spiritual growth to say, I'm going to wait for that person to become healthy and good, you might be waiting your entire life. I put it this way. Don't delay your own growth waiting for a difficult person to change. You know, maybe you're in a situation where you want to go to church every week, but there's someone in your life who they're not right with God and they make fun of you going to church. Don't stop going to church because of them. Don't say, well, I, I, I'll, I'll seek God again once they come around. No, you just keep doing the right thing because you can't control them, but you can control you. So don't delay your own spiritual growth waiting for that difficult person to change. Pray for them to change, but put your eyes on your speedometer. Ask God, what's the course for my life? And just keep on the road. Like Tobiah, sadly, some difficult people do behave that way their entire life. And that's a tragic thing. That's not what we want for anyone. But we have to acknowledge sometimes our desire to change and help the difficult person sidelines us. And so we pray for them, but then we keep saying, God, what's your will for my life? I'm gonna keep moving forward. Step three, refuse to let a difficult person control your thoughts, control your agenda, or control your emotions. I mean, Nehemiah is a great example of this. 
Because we read this story and it's like Tobiah, Nehemiah, these weird old names, this ancient city. But if we could put ourselves emotionally into Nehemiah's position, most of us would have gotten totally derailed by Tobiah because it's so easy to let the difficult people in our lives set the agenda. And now what we're doing in a given day, what we're thinking about, what we're feeling isn't decided by God or by us having a healthy view of how to live our life. Instead, the most difficult, dangerous person in our life is controlling our time, our thoughts, our emotions. And so if you're dealing with a difficult person, this is a kind of an important self-assessment one of like, okay, am I allowing that person to set the agenda for my life? Am I allowing that reckless person to control my life? You know, God calls us to love all people. But loving people doesn't mean allowing them to set the agenda for our lives or to control our emotions or our time or our energy. And Jesus is a great example of this. Jesus frequently declined requests from people, even good people, so that he could spend his energy doing the Father's work. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus over and over again, he says, I have not come to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So he says over and over, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And every day, Jesus was aligning himself with heaven and he was saying, God, what do you have for me to do on earth? And that as followers of Jesus, as we grow in our relationship with him, that becomes our center every day. God, what do you want me to do today with my time, with my energy, with my emotions, with my gifts? And the people around me don't determine what I do with my life. Heavenly Father, you determine what I do with my life. And I love the people around me. I pray for them. The difficult people around me, I forgive them. All that is available through my relationship with you. But God, you're the one who sets the agenda for my life. Not myself and not the people around me. Step four, see God as bigger. See God as bigger. That's what Nehemiah does over and over again. He says, the God of heaven. And every time this difficult person represents himself in another difficult situation, every time Nehemiah says, remember, oh my God, what I'm doing. You see my heart. You see my motives. God, you see Tobiah and what he's doing. You are bigger. And I trust you that the speed trap is ahead. And you're going to get justice for the difficult people in my life. I don't have to go out there and get that justice. I'm not going to let them run me over, but I'm also not going to go road rage because my Father in heaven can handle it. Now, I'm going to give you just a, a little deeper note here, okay? And if this doesn't, if you're like, I can't do that yet, it's okay, all right? But here's what has happened in my life. As you pray this prayer and you say, God, I want to see you bigger, I want to believe the speed trap is ahead. I want to believe that you're going to handle the situation. You know what will happen in your heart eventually? Where there is legitimate wounds from someone who has wronged you, eventually God can turn your heart and you actually become compassionate toward the difficult person in your life because you know the speed trap is ahead. And you become so aware that their justice is coming that you actually start to pray that they'll change so that instead of their justice, they could receive the forgiveness of Jesus and not have to go through that. Now, if you're not there yet, that's okay. If you're still just deeply hurt 
and, you, and you're like, John, I could never pray and have compassion for the person who's hurt me. That's okay if you're not there yet, okay? But start with seeing God as bigger and trust that he will bring justice to that situation. Here's what Jesus did, because keep in mind, we're talking about deeply selfish people. Jesus was crucified by deeply selfish people, including me. Because of my sins, because of my mistakes, he went to the cross. And look what 1 Peter chapter 2 says about him. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. He didn't go road rage on him. He could have. He's almighty God. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, as our model, the perfect human who never sinned, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is God the Father in heaven. So when you're going through that difficult, difficult situation and what the person has done is just unfair and unjust, what do you do? You entrust your soul to the God of heaven who judges justly. And you say, God, you're gonna deal with that person and I pray that you'd change their heart. But God, I can only control my speedometer, my steering wheel. Help me to respond in the right way in this situation. You know, this principle is impossible to apply without faith. It's impossible to apply if you don't actually believe that God exists. And so if you're here and you're going through something difficult and there's injustice in your life and you say, how in the world could I do that? You just say, God, would you help me to see you as bigger? Help me to choose to believe that you're seeing all of this. You are writing down an account of every person's life and people around me might not understand how unfair this is. The difficult person might be completely selfish, but God, you see it all. And help me every night when I lay my head on the pillow, be able to say, God, you see my motives. You see what I'm doing. Thank you for helping me to live your way in this situation. Well, there's a fifth way to idiot-proof your life, and it's this. Live for an audience of one. That's what Nehemiah does. He's not living for the approval of the people around him. He's not living to try to prove Tobiah wrong. He's living for the approval of one person alone, the God of heaven. Live for an audience of one desiring his reward. You know, we're saved by grace through faith, not by our works. If you've never received that, you can receive that gift of salvation today where you simply come to God and acknowledge where you've been stupid in life or where you've made selfish choices and you say, God, I know I've sinned, I've done things wrong. Will you forgive me through the work of Jesus on the cross? And the moment you do that, you're adopted into the family of God. You now have an eternal space for you in heaven that is there not because you've achieved it, but because Jesus achieved it on the cross. In fact, your record of mistakes in your life gets wiped clean when you place your faith in Jesus, just like a, a whiteboard with a, a you know, non-permanent marker on there, when it gets wiped clean, that's what Jesus does for our lives. And, and so we know that we're gonna be in heaven not because of what we did, but because of what he did. Uh, but there's this other kind of deeper nuance in scripture that you don't hear taught very often. And it's this, while our salvation does not depend on our works, there will still be a judgment on the lives of Christians where God says, what did you do with what I gave to you? That's why Jesus taught, he said, to whom much is given, much is required. In other words, God will assess and say, what did you do with your life? 
And that assessment doesn't get you into heaven or not, but there's all these passages in scripture about this future worlds that God's gonna make and that those who seek first the kingdom of God will rule and reign and that there are crowns in heaven and rewards. It's this whole other kind of category in the Bible of passages that you can read. The point is this, as a follower of Christ, I will give account to God at the end of my life for how I handled these difficult people and difficult situations. And through the power of Christ, even when I fail, I'm still gonna be in heaven because of what Jesus did. But Jesus can give me the power to handle those in such a way that when God looks back on my life, he says, way to go. No one else understood what you were feeling. No one else knew how unjust that was, but I saw it. And I wanna reward you for that. That's Nehemiah's mentality when he says, remember me, O God. And bless me because it's really hard to do the right thing right now, but I'm choosing to because I have a high view of you and I'm living for an audience of one. Nehemiah lived like the God of heaven is watching and is bigger. And here's really your application if you're dealing with a difficult person right now. Every day you choose to say, I will respond and behave in a way that God can reward. Right? He's my father in heaven. I'm gonna be in his house for eternity because he loves me unconditionally, even if I mess up. But I want to be able to look my father in heaven in the eyes and him say, way to go. That was really tough. You really had to dig deep to choose to do the right thing there and you did it and I'm proud of you. And that's the choice we make when we're dealing with difficult people. Romans 12 verse 21 puts it this way. It says, do not be overcome with evil. There will be evil in our lives. Don't let it overcome you. Instead, overcome evil with good. This is how Jesus lived. And as a follower of Jesus, impossible as that might seem in your circumstance, he will empower you to live this way. God never commands us to do something that he doesn't empower us to do. As a follower of Jesus, this is a command for your life and he's put the Holy Spirit inside of you to empower you. You can overcome evil with good by the power of the cross, by the power of Almighty God who lives inside you. Well, after World War II, here in the United States, we welcomed home in 1945 so many soldiers who had been prisoners of war, American soldiers who had been taken prisoners and held captive in Japan or in Germany or all around the world. And here's a picture of two prisoners of war from August of 1945 who were released from a Japanese prison camp. And this gives you a sense of how malnourished, how starved, how close to death so many of these prisoners of war were. And of course, when the war ended, they were welcomed home as heroes. And there were parades and there were feasts and these malnourished soldiers were fed and they were nourished. But what the food and the parades couldn't do was fix the trauma that was inside of them. One of those soldiers is a guy I've told you about in some of my other messages, a guy named Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini had been an Olympic athlete. He had competed in the Olympics right before World War II. And so when he got captured by the Japanese, there was a Japanese prison guard who was nicknamed the bird. And the bird fixated on Louis and every day he would torture Louis. He singled him out because he had been world famous. And the bird, he would take off his belt. He had this big brass belt buckle and he would beat Louis with his belt. 
He'd beat Louis with sticks. He would make Louis go through all these different kinds of torture. Because Louis had been an athlete, he'd make him run laps around the prison compound, even when he was malnourished like this. Even after he had broken his leg, this prison guard, the bird, would keep beating him and say, run faster, aren't you an athlete? Aren't you famous? I mean, just torturing him, singling him out day after day. So when Louis returned home to the United States in 1945, heroes welcome and photo shoots and parades and feasts. But after a year or two, Louis became an alcoholic because he had this deep internal pain, this injustice that had been done with him, and he didn't know what to do with it. So like most of us, he turned to something that would make him feel better, alcohol. And like so many other addictive things, it made him feel better for a little bit and it numbed the pain, but then it destroyed his life. And Louis spiraled down, Louis Zamperini spiraled down into the life of a complete alcoholic where every day he was intoxicated and his marriage was falling apart and he was becoming a mess of a man. And in 1949, Louis got invited to hear about Jesus at what was called a Billy Graham crusade. It was held out in Los Angeles, California, and Louis showed up and he heard the good news of Jesus who could forgive our mistakes and who can set us free, not only from our mistakes, he can also set us free from the idiot's mistakes that have been controlling our lives. Louis trusted in Jesus in 1949. He had a dramatic conversion. And because of his new relationship with Jesus, he got sober and his life started to change. And as Louis followed Jesus, eventually he had this realization that if God could forgive him, then God could forgive the bird and all the sadistic guards who used to beat him. In fact, in the 1950s, Louis went on a tour of Japan. He went back to the same prison and he went around Japan finding these former captors who used to torture him and going to them and telling them that he forgave them through the power of Jesus and that they could have an eternal life with God in heaven if they too would trust in Jesus. Louis traveled and spoke all over the world about God's overwhelming forgiveness, times when he was able to embrace and forgive those captors. But you know, very much like Tobiah, who never changed, the bird never came around. In fact, you talk about injustice, the bird became very successful in business throughout the 60s and 70s. And eventually the bird retired to a really nice home in Australia on the coast of the ocean, lived out his final years as a wealthy retiree. And it looked like you know, there never was justice in this life. The bird never wanted anything to do with Louis or his forgiveness. And again, you think, man, that could have just torn Louis up inside, the injustice of that. But instead, I love this picture of Louis because this shows the joy of Louis Zamperini as an old, old man. He just recently went to heaven. Louis, where he could have been controlled by the negative things that had happened to him because of his relationship with Jesus, he was full of joy, was full of peace. How could he do that? How could he live such an inspirational life? Well, it's not just that he was a strong man, it's that he was made right with God through the strongest man in history, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ transformed Louis's heart. That's why people like Angelina Jolie were so inspired by his story, made a life 
movie about his story called Unbroken ends right before he becomes a follower of Jesus. Jesus has the power to overcome evil in your life. He has the power to forgive, the power to restore not only our mistakes, but to set us free from the mistakes of others. And so God brought you here today to encourage you where there's a difficult person in your life. Don't give up. The God of heaven's watching. He's taking notes. The speed trap is ahead. There will be justice. You don't have to get your justice for yourself, but do keep your eyes on your speedometer. Keep your hands on your wheel and say, God of heaven, remember me. Help me today to live in this situation in a way that you can honor and reward. I wanna pray that for you right now. Father, across this room, you see our deep wounds. You see our brokenness. You see how difficult people have wronged us and harmed us. And Jesus, you know exactly how that feels because difficult people nailed you to a cross. Difficult people rejected your love. When you came with kindness and healing, difficult people chose to mock you, to torture you, and even to kill you. And as you hung there bleeding, you cried out, Father, forgive them. These difficult people don't even know what they're doing. Lord, I pray right now for anyone in this room who's never received your forgiveness, which can wipe away all of our mistakes. I pray that even in this moment, they would place their faith in you. And Father, as we walk with you, we are new creations. We now have the heart of Christ in us. And God, when we encounter difficult people, would you make us more like Jesus? Would you help us to entrust our souls to the God of heaven who judges justly? And God, we pray for those difficult people, save them from themselves. And God, we choose every day to say, you see me, Lord, you see what I'm doing. May my motives, may my behavior be pleasing to you that as you look at my life, you can say, son, daughter, well done. I wanna reward you. What you're going through is hard, but you're choosing me. Jesus, we choose you. It's all possible because you died on the cross for our sins. You rose from the grave. You have overcome evil. And so now we can overcome evil with good. We celebrate that now through the power of Jesus. Amen.